When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning. Oh, boy. You know, when you spend a day in the garden and it's a fantastic idea at the time, it's pure genius that you should go out and mow the lawn and clip the hedge and wheel the barrow and you use muscles that you don't ordinarily use. Ah, yeah. (laughs) It was a very, very long weekend. How was yours? Anyway, when you call uh, 0818 300 103 is the number today. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Lots to talk about, including the scientist who believes you're better off with natural infection than a fourth COVID vaccine. A thousand extra college places. But in what courses? And Arthur O'Mara. Oh, God, he's going out in the garden at half past ten. Yeah. Any questions for him? Please do get in touch. What's on the front pages today? Surge in building costs to keep price of houses at boom level, says the Irish Independent. Because normally, the laws of economics suggest that when supply goes up and demand remains the same, prices should come down. But... Because building materials are just surging. Timber, for instance, is incredibly expensive because of uh, shortages and the forestry licensing issue. And then you've got steel and other metals, which typically come from Russia. And, of course, now they've just gone ridiculously expensive. That any benefit to more houses coming on the market will be wiped away in price because the new houses are more expensive to build. So says the Irish Banking and Payments Federation, uh, which says leading indicators show pressures building up in relation to input prices, which could have an effect on housing. Annual building inflation, 18.2% in April, which is well above the average rate of inflation at about 8% for everything else. And house prices outside of Dublin climbed 17%. That's faster than in the capital, by the way. Anyway, that's on the front of the Irish Independent. Lovely picture of a man and his dogs. Where is he? He is Rob Walsh, who describes himself as animal mad. And he's taking one, two, three, four, five, six dogs. And he seems to have a hook attached to his belt. And all the dogs are... That's a rather precarious position he has it actually attached to. Because if they take a notion, he's being pulled along by a very delicate part of his body. Anyway, moving on. The Irish Times shows Boris Johnson on the front page with a smile on his face. But I'd say inside there are thoughts of a very, very short future in Downing Street. He has survived a confidence motion, but only just. More than four out of ten MPs voted to remove him. His own MPs, Conservative Party MPs. The vote of confidence in the Prime Minister 
was won by 211 to 148. And historians point out that when a Prime Minister suffers like this, they tend to uh, exit office within months rather than years. Theresa May, for instance, lost her... Com- well, she won, excuse me, she won the confidence motion by 63%, but in reality she lost um, the authority to carry on as Prime Minister and within just six months she was gone. So a confidence motion, unless it's a resounding majority, tends to be the death knell on a prime ministerial career. Uh, The other story on the front of the Irish Times is the passport service is dealing with 12,000 queries from TDs alone. Many people in frustration with the long delays are going to their local TD because he or she has a special telephone line into the passport office that us mere mortals cannot access. But it's a testament to how busy they are if 12,000 queries are waiting to be processed from TDs alone. Now, what's inside the front pages today? A mixed-race family in Mullingar, and they say they're not afraid to be the first. The Irish Times introduces you to Raimonda Mezulte from Lithuania and her husband Vimal Ramshurn from Mauritius. They met in Dublin at a course in Griffith College and little did he know at the time that she is a pop star in Lithuania and very well known and she was enjoying the relative anonymity that Ireland brought her because whenever she goes back home, she cannot move, but people are looking for her autograph or pointing. And one thing she found particularly distasteful, she would be asked constantly about her weight, because pop stars always are subject to that sort of scrutiny. So they clicked in Griffith College, and this is more than ten years ago. They got married within three years, and then they were looking around the country because prices were very, very expensive, and they settled on Mullingar, a fixer-upper. And so their dream is to open a restaurant which will combine his culinary talents as a chef, and she will be able to serenade the patrons with her delightful voice. So Mullingar, they're finding it to be a wonderful community because the musical connections are very good for her, and they finally managed to get to know people in the town. They moved in in 2019, but because of lockdowns, well, there wasn't really a chance to mix and mingle. So, welcome to the parish, indeed. That's in the Irish Times, if you wish to read it. And you may know Vimal and Raimonda, in which case we'd love to talk to them. Um, where else are we going today? Yes, the cost of building materials highlighted in several papers... Um, Yes, this is one for you. Air travel. Are you planning a holiday through the summer? Because prices have rebounded very, very strongly. Only a few months ago, to try and tempt you onto a plane, to even get you to contemplate taking a flight, there were some good deals. But according to uh, the business affairs correspondent in the Times, Mark Paul, uh, prices 
are 15% higher than they were pre-pandemic. So tourism and air travel rebounding strongly. Love Island is back on TV. I'm not sure if that's rebounding so strongly because the reviews are pretty negative. It's bland. It's boring. Do you agree? You were introduced to Paige, India, Tasha, Amber and Gemma. Gemma's the one to watch because her full name is Gemma Owen. And she hopes, and she drops as many hints as possible, that you might recognise her surname because she is the daughter of Michael Owen, the soccer player. Anyway, it was all very steady stuff. Nothing remarkable. Until David was introduced. He's the guy nobody was expecting. And, well, the ladies are swooning for him. And even though they've already been paired up, there's a chance that maybe Gemma might go off. Anyway, he's a good-looking lad, but sure, they're all good-looking lads. They're bronzed and they've got muscles in places that mere mortals don't have places. Russia. Its ambassador at the UN got so annoyed, he stood up and walked out when he was criticised and his country was criticised by the European Council President, Charles Michel. Mr. Michel was objecting to Russia blockading ports in the Black Sea and it was impossible, he said, for grain to leave the ports and make its way around the world and he accused Russia of firing a stealth missile to developing countries using food supplies to create a global crisis. Anyway, Mr. Nebrenzia who was Russian's diplomat there, he walked up, stormed out of the briefing and said Mr Michel's comments were so rude. Good news if you're a parent and you're paying hundreds and hundreds of euro in childcare costs every month. A new plan is being uh, prepared by Roderick O'Gorman. He's the children's minister. And this would appear to be the Green Party's effort to put a stamp on Budget 2023. Because last week you'd Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael doing big set-piece interviews, laying out their own stalls, trying to steal thunder from each other. Well, Roderick O'Gorman tells the Irish Examiner that he is acutely aware of the expense for parents who on average pay €800 Euro per month per child for a creche. And his aim is to reduce by several hundred euro the costs per month in the budget. He says, I don't think a 50 euro cut would be substantial. He wants to go down hundreds of euro. Now, you consider the thousands of children in creche, multiply it and do the sums. That's going to be a huge, huge package if it makes its way into the budget. He might be just a little bit optimistic there. Um, where else are we going today? Yes, tomato ketchup. Staple of so many diets. Seen on dinner tables all across the Midlands. Every restaurant worth its salt will have tomato ketchup. But it's in short supply. Like, hang on, this has nothing to do with Ukraine, by the way. The Independent tells us that in California and in Italy and in China... And this is the region of the world where they have the so-called processing tomatoes, 
being cultivated. These are uh, territories at risk from global warming. Temperatures are a lot warmer in California than would normally be the case, likewise in, in the parts of China. And so our house university in Denmark has projected ahead and they believe within 10 to 20 years we're going to have a shortage of tomatoes. And by the year 2050, there will be a 6% decline in tomato production. So actually the headline is a little bit misleading when they talk about ketchup feeling the squeeze from climate change. A 6% decline in tomato production isn't exactly going to take ketchup off the table, is it? I'm sure you can just have a smaller bottle, maybe a little bit less. Um, good news if you are not a sporty spice because you will always find somebody who is fitter and faster and healthier or at least on the outside that's how they appear. You know these people who do the ultra marathons or the big endurance challenges, the Ironman? Well, running a marathon could age you by a decade. I'll read on. This is in The Independent if you wish to read it, by the way. So, for men who regularly take part in marathons, Ironman contests, competitive cycling, they were found to have a vascular age a decade older than their chronological age. And it has to do with the stiffening of your arteries. Now, interestingly enough, women who did such events were found to benefit from such extreme exercise. Now, the emphasis there is on extreme because the benefits of going out, taking regular cardiovascular exercise are indisputable. You need to do it. It's really good in keeping away heart disease and other nasties. But men who go to the extreme and do so on a regular basis, according to uh, scientists who were funded by the British Heart Foundation, so this isn't just an idle doctor giving an opinion. They find that men should not do these events on a regular basis. That's if they're over the age of 40. Under 40 seems to have some benefits. Over 40, no. And let's see, a final one for you. If you're a landowner and you're finding that pedestrians are coming across your property, they're hiking, they're sightseeing, and to be fair, we're promoting this kind of tourism in a big way here in the Midlands, trying to get people out walking and uh, enjoying all that nature has to offer. The downside for a landowner is you could be sued if they put their uh, foot into a hole and fall over awkwardly and break their ankle. It's your fault. Or if they're climbing over a fence and again, disaster strikes. Who's liable? You're liable. Well, that may be changing because the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, has told the Irish Independent that she intends to sort out this liability issue, that if you walk on somebody's land, there will be a voluntary assumption of risk. So you know you might be putting yourself in a position that results in harm. And the... Uh, Irish Farmers Association is interviewed by the paper admitting that monuments and trails are being advertised by tour operators but there's a liability issue for the farmer 
and very often the farmer isn't even aware that their land is being advertised and then people have a right of way or they feel they have a right of way over the land. So it's really a case of the left hand not knowing what the right is doing. Surely before a trail is promoted, somebody should talk to the landowner and ask, are you okay with this? Are you at least aware of it? So at least the insurance issue will be addressed in the not-too-distant future. Uh, The Minister has completed a review of what's called the Occupier's Liability Act, and it will be changed. Rewind two years, June 2020. Places of worship were closed as worse. Uh, Gyms, cinemas, leisure facilities. Uh, We were looking towards maybe by the end of the month having some sporting activities resuming in a small, small way, maybe having larger groups indoors. But so much of normal life was on hold. Cafes and restaurants, pubs and hotels, they were closed. Uh, They might have been allowed to serve food by the end of the month. And COVID was an ever-present feature of daily life. Fast forward to now, and thankfully it has receded into the background of our consciousness. Vaccines have arrived. Case numbers, although uh, still relatively high, are not translating into hospital deaths and serious illness in the way they did two years ago. But it hasn't gone away. And a question might well be asked, well, in a year's time, will we still be getting booster vaccines? In five years' time? In ten? So looking to the future and giving this some thought, Kingston Mills is a professor of experimental immunology at Trinity College Dublin. Of course, he's originally from Mullingar. Kingston, good morning. Good morning. And very nice to talk to you in 2022 as opposed to 2020. Now, talk, yes, talk to us about um, the most recent developments in vaccines because we were told, um, I suppose a couple of months ago, Uh, Maybe we will be taking them through the nose and that might uh, limit onward transmission. Maybe eventually there would be uh, a vaccine sequenced that would be effective against any variant of SARS-CoV-2. How much progress is being made? Okay, so we have had the first generation of COVID vaccine, which were very effective, especially early in the pandemic against the circulating strains. And as the virus changed, they became less effective, especially against infection. They still prevent severe disease. And the problem is that the the, the virus has mutated. It's changed away from where it originally was. That made it more difficult for the vaccine to work. Um, What we then um, need, what we need now is, is a vaccine that's specifically designed to take care of the circulating strains, the Omicron BA. 1, BA2, BA4 and BA5. But the problem has been that every time the company made a new version, they had a Delta version ready and of course it all changed to Omicron Mm. and now they have to have an Omicron version. And and the trouble is that even though they can make these vaccines about three weeks, it takes a couple of months to test them and get regulatory approval. They don't have to do massive testing, just safety testing in a small number of people, but that still has to be done. Um, So so there's a lag. As soon as they make a breakthrough and, and, and release the vaccine, there's a new variant already here. 
Yeah, exactly. Now, it probably would be the case that if they were to release an Omicron-specific one, uh, as opposed to a BA4 or 5, it would be still very effective against BA4 and 5 compared with Wuhan. Wuhan is very different from Omicron and BA4 and BA5, the various subvariants of Omicron. So I think what we will see is, or even what they're talking about now with the mRNA, which is very easy to do, is to make a, a sort of a cocktail of sequences in the virus, in the, in the vaccine. So they have um, several different possibilities that it will be um, protecting against. And, and that's something that the mRNA vaccines can do readily. Um, I think what we're looking at probably is a, a, vac- a new version for the autumn um, when it's likely that the case numbers might pick up again um, and, and to be ready for that with a, with, a, with a new program of vaccination. Is it conceivable there would be a vaccine that would recognise the basic building blocks of SARS-CoV-2 irrespective of how it mutates and what variant may be prevalent? That's a good question. In fact, that's been something that people in the influenza field have been trying to do for, for decades. Um, influenza is, is similar uh, to, to, to SARS-CoV-2 in that it, it changes the coat protein. But there are bits of the virus, the sort of other structural proteins in the virus that don't change so much. And the people in the flu field have been trying to make a vaccine against those components of, 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 of the virus. But it has, to be, it has to be said the success hasn't been great. So they're still left with the fact that with flu, you have to get a booster every year if you really want to get full protection. I think we're going to see the same for uh, SARS-CoV-2 where there'll be annual boosters um, you know, for, for, for the foreseeable future that uh, SARS-CoV-2 will become like a virus like influenza where we have a seasonal um, you know, episodes of the infection. Now the good, the good news is that uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2 has become much less lethal virus than it was at the start and that's to the benefit of the, of the host of course, the human because uh, you know much much fewer people are going to hospital and fewer dying from this version of the of the virus. That's not to say that it doesn't cause severe disease in some people, especially older and people with, with a compromised immune system. So it's still a dangerous virus. And, you know, you can't be complacent about it and say that, well, you know, it's gone and we're not going to have a problem. I, I think, you know, the, the, the major thing is that if you haven't got immunity through vaccination or infection, you need to go out and get the vaccine. And that's still the, the mantra that we have to preach. Or infection, you mentioned there, and many people will have picked up uh, over the last couple of months some strain of COVID-19. How does the immunity you gain naturally compare to the immunity you pick up from a vaccine? Well, in fact, if you've been treble vaccinated and then fortunate enough to get COVID, as I did, then um, um, you know that you, you're getting infected with a, a variant that's much closer to what's circulating now rather than the vaccine, which was the variant that was circulating in the beginning of the pandemic, the Wuhan strain. So, in fact, two, three doses of vaccine plus infection it probably gives more immunity than four doses of a vaccine. So all the people who have had recent infections will have a reasonable level of immunity. Now, if you've had infection last year, it's not going to be a huge benefit. But if it's recent in the last few months, because that's the circulating strains of the Omicron and the subvariants of Omicron, then you will get a good level of immunity conferred with that combined with the vaccine. That's the important point. All of them add up to boosting the immune response and giving you a good level of immunity. Will you know that you uh, picked up a natural infection? In other words, will you always get sick because of it? 
that's the part of the problem now. A considerable number of people get asymptomatic. Now, if they were astute enough and they knew they'd got a, a contact with a known case, they may have done an antigen test. And people who have done an antigen test and were positive but didn't have any symptoms will also have immunity. Um, lots of people will have had symptoms and done antigen tests or PCR tests and will know that they, they have been infected. But there's about half of people who get infected who are very mild or no symptoms and they wouldn't even know. So th- there may be lots of people out there that have immunity and don't know. It's not going to do any harm to get the booster. It'll add another layer of, of immunity. But uh, the, the, the vaccines combined with the infection, whether it be asymptomatic or fully symptomatic infection, would give good immunity. Sometimes there's more than one way to skin a cat. A virus must jump to new hosts in order to survive. Could we conceivably develop a vaccine that would prevent onward transmission? That's the, 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 the sort of holy grail. So induce what we call sterilizing immunity. That is immunity in the nose. The nose is the first place, the nasal cavity, where the, the, the virus cats catches hold. The problem with the current vaccines, they're given injected, and they, get, they give good circulating you know, in our blood antibodies, but not so good in the, in the nasal cavity. And therefore, the vaccine doesn't really prevent infection. Now, there are other vaccines, and we're working here in Trinity on a version of an, a nasal vaccine, both against SARS-CoV-2. We're also working on nasal vaccine against whooping cough. And we know from other studies that, that nasally delivered vaccines um, are more effective at inducing this, what we call sterilizing immunity, which is stopping the virus in its tracks, in, in, especially when respiratory pathogens. So that's, that's something for the future, for sure, the sort of the second and third generation vaccines. When you say the future, how far away yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, the, the the future depends really on the on the demand, if you like. And so, you know, the COVID nineteen vaccines were made in a year because the demand was just so great. There was such a serious problem that everybody put, you know, their effort into it. The financially, the governments put money into it. Um, the more money you throw at it, the quicker the thing is going to happen. Um, you won't see the same investment in in nasal vaccines as you saw in the original COVID vaccines. It will take a bit longer, but but there are already some. Some of the companies are already testing their current vaccines given into the nose, and, and that might be beneficial. But once they're specifically designed, you're talking about a couple of years away um, before you have a... And you, we already have an easy delivered vaccine against flu, for example. Mm. So it's not about the... And it's a very good vaccine. So it's not that far off for SARS. So that would be the next step. Well, for anybody who has uh, an intense interest in this field... Um, you have a conference coming up on the 9th of June, uh, that's Wednesday, and a whole host of speakers, the likes of Dr. Killian de Gascon, um, yourself, of course, uh, Dr. Connor Finlay from uh, Trinity as well. What's the point of the conference? Who's it aimed at? Okay, so there's, there's two bits to this conference. It's Thursday and Friday, the scientific sessions where there are leading scientific experts. But really what might be more interesting to the public is the Saturday morning session, which is a public outreach, where we're discussing how Ireland dealt with the pandemic and how we can be better prepared to deal with the next pandemic. If you want to come along, just Google Trinity COVID conference and you can register online for free. And it's in Trinity Biomedical Science Institute on Pierce Street in Dublin. Kingston Mills, always great to talk with you and thank you for your time. All right, bye Kingston Mills is a professor of experimental immunology at Trinity College, Dublin. Now, next, so many organisations are looking for workers and indeed are trying to make their services uh, sustainable with fewer staff. 
one of them that is incredibly important if you have cancer would be the night nurse service operated by the Irish Cancer Society. And in Westmeath in particular, they're experiencing a shortage of night nurses. So what's involved if you sign up? What do you need to be prepared for? Because you would be doing incredible service for people in their final days. After 11, a new support service has been put in place to help you or somebody you care for with harmful gambling. And it is operating here in the Midlands very, very discreetly. So nobody needs to know if you reach out for help. Anyway, more on that after 11. Now, when somebody you love is entering their final days or final weeks, it is all-consuming for the people around them. And it can be hard to look after yourself. You want to be there day and night. In which case, you're burning the candle at both ends because you need your rest and you need your sleep and you need a chance to get away from the situation. And that's where the Irish Cancer Society's night nurses come in and they provide support to uh, 200 families around the Midlands in a typical year. That's more than 800 nights of care. The problem is there's a shortage of night nurses. So if you come from such a background, if you've always thought, hmm, I wonder, should I sign up? Well, let's find out what's involved because Caroline Webb is a night nurse with the Irish Cancer Society. Caroline, you're very welcome to the programme. Good morning. Good morning, Will. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Tell us about the work you do. I am a night nurse with the Irish Cancer Society, I suppose, for the last seven years. I sort of fell into the job by accident, really. I hadn't nursed for a little while. I was doing other things, um, raising my family and, and, and lots of other things besides. So, yes, I started it about seven years ago. Um, basically, uh, the night nurses go into families um, who have uh, people for end-of-life care and they go in there as a support for them for the night. We normally start at 11, finish at 7 in the morning. So basically, we're giving the family and the patient the care for the night that they need. Um, as you said previously, just to let the family sleep in a lot of cases. Um, just that they were, we're there to, in case medication is needed and overall just, just to help and be that comfort blanket for the night for them, really. As valuable as the work you do is, I imagine it must be very taxing emotionally. Do you ever get used to it? You know, it's, it's, it's a very difficult job to describe. It's, it's, it's such a beautiful, beautiful job. It's so rewarding. It's so humbling. You're meeting families sometimes for the first time and within a couple of minutes of meeting you at the door, they're leaving you with the most precious thing they have in the world mm. and they're trusting you with that person. And you meet so many lovely, beautiful families who are minding their relative so well at home and it's not easy for them it's not easy to have somebody at home and it's a huge responsibility for the families and just having that extra person to come in 
sometimes we're just there as support. We're there if we're needed. The families are the ones that are taking care of their loved ones. We're there as a support to do whatever they need us to do. And you've just got one person to take care of for the night. Of course, at times it can be emotionally draining, but it's so, so rewarding and that it just makes up for it. You just feel like you're doing something totally useful and um, just such a help to the families and it's a special time It's I find it a very peaceful time to be with families and their loved ones at that time um, I just find it totally um, just beautiful it's just a gorgeous gorgeous job and varied because I imagine your counsellor your conversationalist <laughs> having a cup of tea on the on the medical side again what sort of background do you need and what tends to be involved? Okay, so full training is given. That's the first thing. And the Irish Cancer Society is so supportive to us as an organisation. The nurses come first, always. That's always the way it's been. So there's support there 24-7. We do have to give medication at night time if needed, you know, for pain or whatever symptoms the patient has. But it is very, very basic nursing care. Very basic. Um, A general nurse, we're looking for registered general nurses, and no particular experience, really, um, just registered nurses might be suitable for somebody who is looking for flexibility because it's totally flexible. You know, we go week week on week. Uh, somebody who possibly would be able to do five to six to eight nights per month. Um, and uh, so somebody looking for flexibility or later career professionals may be seeking seeking employment, maybe somebody who's retired, somebody with a young family. It really and truly could suit so many nurses out there, so many. And if they just give it a chance, uh, try it, um, guaranteed, they will absolutely love it. It is not. It really is like no other nursing job. And for your own circadian rhythm, how many nights a month might be involved? Well, well, the society are looking for people who might be able to do um, six to eight uh, nights per month. So myself, um, my kids are a little bit older now, but I, even when they were younger, it was very, very handy because I could go when everything was done at home. I'd go to work, come home, they'd be going to school, drop them to school, have my sleep, be up again then for when they come home. So currently... Um, I would do probably two or three nights every week. That's that's what I can do here, yeah. And you get into a rhythm then, do you? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Absolutely. You do need to go to sleep during the day, obviously. And what I do then sometimes in the evening time again, before I go out to the family again, I um, may go to bed for another little rest. And do you see yourself doing this for long? Well, I'm doing it now seven years and I have absolutely no intention of giving it up. I absolutely love it. I would miss it terribly if I had to give it up. That's the truth. It's, it's, I couldn't imagine doing any other job now. Well, for anybody who is curious and wants to know more, the careers section of cancer.ie is where you can go or the email is recruitment at irishcancer.ie. Caroline, thank you very much for taking our call. 
Thank you so much, Will, for giving me the opportunity. Caroline Webb, and she covers County West Meath. And by the way, if you want to inquire about night nursing assistance from a patient's perspective, 1800 200 700. That's a free phone number. 1800 200 700. The free phone support line for the Irish Cancer Society. Good morning. Now, still to talk about today... The government is expected to add a 1,000 extra college places. But in what areas, what courses will be uh, beefed up to cater for the extra demand? And about the house and garden returns from half past 11. And if you're looking at making your home more energy efficient and in times like this, heavens above, anything you can do to shave off the energy bills will be very, very welcome. We'll try and look at what the most affordable options are from half past 11. So, fire in a question, 083 30 10 103 on text and on WhatsApp. And we'll be going out in the garden from half 10 with Arthur O'Mara as well. Any cures for a stiff back if you overdid it in the garden over the long weekend? Uh, any suggestion? Very, very welcome indeed. Now, what attracts a pop star to Mullingar? Well, I want you to meet a lady who has spent more than a decade in Ireland and has settled with her husband in County Westmeath and hopes to one day open her own restaurant, drawing on his culinary skills as a chef and her abilities as a singer to serenade you around the dining table. Uh, Raymonda Masolita Ramchurn. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> that was perfect pronunciation, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it took a bit of practice. <laughs> so, let's uh, go back to why you came to Ireland in the first place. Because my impression is you weren't planning to stay. No, I was not planning to stay indeed. So... My idea was to visit Ireland as um, because my sister lived here at that time. So I said, "Look, I must, you know, I'm a bit of a pop star in Lithuania. I did all these Eurovisions. I was very young at that time. There was quite a bit of pressure, um, you know, how how to look, how to act, how to dress. I said, you know what? I want to go off and just have a good time." maybe enroll in some studies for like a year um, and then come back mm. and do more music. And uh, and so I decided to take this creative break and I came to Ireland. And I had such a good time that I decided to stay. <laughs> no, actually, I've met my husband. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a man involved, yes. <laughs> and did people recognize you here or were you completely anonymous? Uh, Lithuanians, they did recognize me. Some of them did recognize me, and they they were all very welcoming and supportive and helped me through from finding apartments to, let's say, you know, organizing myself through the studies. Um, But in in general, I try to mingle with with the whole crowd in general. There are so many people from around the world in Ireland. And uh, so I don't limit myself only to Lithuanian community, if that makes sense. But but they do they do recognize me, and and I'm always up for a chat or just a cup of tea, you know. So how did you meet a man from Mauritius? Well, that was uh, a pure uh, coincidence and a miracle. <laughs> so we met together through studies. 
So I remember he came in, and I still remember that day. So he came in into into the class, like into into the auditory, and I'm sitting at the back, and he's sitting with his friends, and I really, really liked something about him, and I thought, okay, well, he's really cute. And then I started talking to my mom or my sister on the phone, and I was speaking in Lithuanian. And I remember him leaving a little note, which absolutely took my heart, and that was it. He wrote, you have such a beautiful voice. I'd like to know you more. And I was like, okay, this is it. And he knew exactly where to pinch, because I would be used to this, oh, you've got beautiful eyes. Oh, look at you. You're so, you know, attractive or something, you know. Women get these kind of compliments all the time. But I wanted something different, and he was that different. He knew exactly what what was most important to me. That was my work, my career, and singing, and, and my vocals. So he was very right to compliment that. <laughs> so so yeah. he, he pressed the right buttons, you clicked. How long Absolutely. was it until you got married? Uh, probably three and a half years until we got married, and uh, but we moved in together quite, quite soon because living together was easier for us than to travel back and forth. Because I lived in Dublin and he was actually living in Monaghan, in Casablanca. Yeah, so he had to move to me for me to Dublin, and that's where we moved in. But we got married three and a half years in. Uh, we tried to create this little bohemian wedding uh, with the church, uh, with uh, with musicians, Miles Drennan, Eamon Moran, all these beautiful colleagues and friends of mine, um, some people from, from, from Dublin and some people from Lithuania and, you know, family from Mauritius couldn't make it as my family from Lithuania, but a few people were there. So that meant a lot to us, really. So Dublin being a capital city has so many restaurants where uh, your husband could work, uh, so many bars and music venues where you can indulge your your taste in music. Why move out of Dublin? That's a very good question because Dublin is really a beautiful city. But so is Mullingar, a really beautiful town. There is a lot to offer for, for somebody like us. Uh, there is this beautiful uh, community where everybody knows each other. Mullingar is a bit like where I came from. Everybody knows each other. You walk down the street and you get these, hi, hello, how are you? And everybody knows each other, really, which means a lot to me. I, I like that kind of a tightness in a community. Obviously, it takes some time for, for, for you to crack in into that. People are a bit more cautious. It's not It's not capital city where you have... You know, so many people from Latin America, from Poland, from Lithuania, from India, from Mauritius. It's a little bit different. And when we walk down here in the street, we probably are one of the few, let's say, mixed-race couples. And mm. and that makes us quite special, you know, in a way. There, there are some changes, some positive changes in, in, in around the world, and not only in Ireland, but in Lithuania as well. You could say 15 years back, you wouldn't have even one... Um, you know, colored person in, in the street or somebody from Latin America studying. And now we have plenty of people settling down in Lithuania and Vilnius especially. So suppose it's the same in Ireland in smaller towns rather than capital. And I really, really like that. So. Um, and do people yeah. notice? I, I would have thought mm. by now Ireland would be sufficiently multicultural that nobody yeah. would bat an eyelid. No, no, nobody does that. But I suppose... You're conscious uh, of it. Maybe, 
e, probably, probably it's me. <laughs> probably it's me. But also, I think uh, maybe older generation still mm. has a bit of uh, prejudice, and they probably a little bit more curious. But it's absolutely normal. It's not a negative thing. It's it's curiosity, and we take it with with a bit of uh, you know, like okay, well, people are curious, and that's and that's a good thing. So. I'm curious because mm. Mullingar is the music mecca of the Midlands, yeah. if not Ireland. So many yeah. uh, <laughs> names have come out of there. Joe Dolan and yeah. Niall Horan and Brezzy and the list just goes yeah. on and on and on and yeah. on. Um, as somebody who has had success in the music mm. business, what do you think of Mullingar uh, musically? Well, I think uh, even going on a night out, which we just did a few nights ago and we're still recovering, uh, it's it's a wonderful place. It, there is a special buzz around Mullingar. We've been to so many different little towns and I had the pleasure going with the Dublin Gospel Choir and on my own going with my jazz uh, band uh, touring. But Mullingar has its own buzz. People really appreciate music. And every music act that you would hear in Mullingar is very, very good. Everyone is not only professional, but very talented. You know, that's raw talent. And and it's just incredible. And I think we made such a good deal. We always listen to our heart, and I felt it's going to be a good choice. And and it is. It is. It really is. Just wait until you experience the flower. Oh, yeah. We cannot wait. We cannot wait. We're actually thinking we might... Uh, we might join into, uh, you know, selling uh, goods and uh, we'll see how it goes. We don't know yet, uh, but uh, it looks like it's going to be a massive festival and we're really looking forward to that. It's going to be our first very traditional, very Irish festival and uh, you cannot get better than that. If you haven't tra- if you haven't experienced traditional music before, there's no... There's no running from it now <laughs> in that festival. It's going to be everywhere. So when are we going to see this restaurant opened? When will the dream well, come true? Well, that's a very good question. It all it all comes to finances. It all comes to project, and uh, we're hoping that uh, it's going to happen soon. Because um, Bimal, my husband, he's a wonderful chef, and all of his heritage comes from Mauritius. His mom is an incredible chef. They have a small restaurant in Mauritius. And uh, obviously, with uh, you know, I would be able to help with with, with um, you know marketing and uh, singing <laughs> and a bit of waitressing. Um, it's just a little family business that we dreamt of. So I hope this happens soon. And uh, if anybody has any ideas, you can drop me a message. <laughs> well, I'm curious, what sort of dishes come from Mauritius? Well, Mauritian dishes, uh, they would be a mix of Indian, African, French, because uh, Mauritius has been occupied by French for a while. Uh, it's a big mix. So let's say you could find yourself eating something like gato pima, which is a spicy little falafel-like uh, cakes with chili in it. Or you could find yourself eating uh, dal puri, which is a pancake-like, a soft pancake-like with uh, various soury uh, mixing inside. So it could be beans, uh, vegetables, spinach, uh, a bit of egg. So they love that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah it sounds It's a very special delicious. place. I would, yeah, I would, I would recommend everybody to just visit it. But try to mingle with locals if you go to Mauritius, because I had that privilege. It was so, so interesting and enlightening, really. Well, there's a gap in the market. I don't think there's a Mauritian restaurant in Mullingar. Not yet, anyway. But time will tell. 
Yes, we don't have many many Mauritians in here. We we had we had met few, but uh, maybe others are hiding. So hopefully after this, they'll show up <laughs> and say hi. It's been a pleasure, and thank you very much for your time. Look forward to seeing that restaurant open someday, and uh, at the very least, you might belt out a tune at the Fla uh, yourself, oh, Raymonda. Yes. yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Have My a good pleasure. Day. Take care. That's Raymonda Masolita Ramchurn who, along with her husband Vimal, now call Mullingar their home. Well, we asked you to nominate those who give you the best customer service experience. And to be fair, you answered in huge numbers, a record number of nominations for the Midlands 103 Customer Service Awards, which take place in just under one month. The judges are in conclave as we speak in the Midlands Park Hotel in Port Leash going through all of the information provided by the nominees. So let's get some insights into what sort of discussions are taking place. Brian Cunningham is our ears on the ground there. Morning, Brian. Good morning to you, Will, and good morning to the listeners as well. Remind us who the judges are, first of all. Well, they're very tense and they're all listening to you intensively, so they'll say good morning to you this morning. They're all they're all here, so they are. They've been here bright and early. They're going through, they're going through uh, all the the various categories. Will as we say, and of course we have a fabulous uh, judging panel. Uh, we have of course the lovely Fiona Gratter joins us back again, managing director of Unislim, and of course uh, we have the lovely Duncan Graham from uh, Retail Excellence Ireland. He's the managing director of retail. Excellent Ireland. Of course, you have the fabulous Adrian Copeland from Louis Copeland and Sons. You have the lovely Catherine Lonigan, of course, former managing director of AIR, and of course now involved with a fabulous IT company called Tuvio. And of course, lastly, but by no means least, Mr. Glamour himself is here this morning. He wants to know, Will, why there is no bribes, why there's no new cars, why there's no new new uh, clothing companies and all the rest like that down here. The wonderful Dr. Jared Keane is here this morning as well. And uh, we're having a fabulous morning. Of course, it's wonderful to see the awards back with Midlands 103. And of course, it's a, a fabulous day for the Midland region, showcasing the best uh, that they have to offer. And of course, there's fabulous businesses, fabulous enterprises, fabulous in- individuals who um, who have all been selected by the listeners of Midlands 103 in various 66 various categories mm-hmm. this year. A huge response to it, Will. Uh, and of course, it's great for Midlands 103 as the main media outlet in uh, the Midland region to uh, have these awards back again. And of course, uh, a lot of hard work has gone into them, um, and a lot of a lot of time. Katrina and all the team there have worked very hard at compiling the shortlist of the top three to the top five in each category. And today, uh, those businesses and individuals have uh, written back, have given their portfolios, their profiles back, and of course, it's a matter now of uh, them going through and uh, selecting who they believe should win for the big awards out here at our host venue, the Midland Park Hotel. And of course, Colin Neville and Dara Cruz and his team here have been very welcoming to us at the Midland Park Hotel this morning as well. Well, as you mentioned, a lot of work to get through, 65 awards. So is there room for argument and have there been any heated conversations yet? 
I tell you what, there was fights here this morning already. Well, so there was, you know, it was it was getting aggressive. So it was this morning at one point, and uh, I put it to you this way: it's great, it's it's fantastic. Uh, you know, we have a wonderful judging panel. Of course, Duncan and Fiona and Catherine and Adrian and Jared have been fantastic to come on board with us on these awards again, and of course, in their own individual right, uh, showcasing. Uh, their talents and looking they're really going into the applications and looking to see who they believe fits the best bill some of the things that we'll always get will is uh, the judges do not know whether these businesses and individuals advertise with Midlands 103 some of them get rid of some of the myths from it firstly and foremostly uh, because some people think oh it's only about the, the advertisers of Midlands 103 it's absolutely nothing to do with that the judges don't even know who advertises who don't advertise nor do I in that matter either. Um, so in terms of they are chosen on their own merit, the listeners have voted. They've voted in their thousands this year. They really are, There's great excitement from it. I, I know from even speaking to different people in the region uh, over the course of the last few days, there's great excitement, there's great buzz. You know, you can see it on social media, online. People were requesting the votes and all the different bits and pieces that way. So now to get shortlisted is, is great. And I think everyone is looking forward to a great night at the Midland Park Hotel uh, right here in, in Port Leisha on uh, Monday, the 4th of July. And what I'm saying to people now at this early stage is tickets are very limited. Tickets are, there's, they're going to be scarce. Will again, it's always a sold out event. Uh, I think if we did this over three nights, it would still be a sold out event. Uh, it's it's a night of anticipation. There's a great night. There's great nights. Uh, crack at it, banter at it, fun, and people just want a good night out after the last. Bring it year. on! Bring uh, it on! And, indeed. And get back. Brian, we leave it there. Um, don't eat all the wedding cake. I know some samples were sent in for wedding cake producer of the year. Try and leave some crumbs behind, okay? You know, I'm, I'm more the merrier. And as Jared says, if someone wants to give, what are you looking for? A new car, Jared, or would you like? Oh, the cars! The cars! <laughs> I hope you're hearing that, Will. Uh, but he, he has he's getting his car service. There's a new car outside. There's new clothes outside. He's getting his teeth done. He's getting his hair done. He's getting his eyebrows done. Yeah, waxed. tell him to stop pretending. We know the one he cares about is Nail Salon of the Year. Nail Salon. <laughs> exactly. What he's, he, I, I would tell you, Will, he's coming in here now, so he is, with different colour nails. Uh, you know, he's a different, <laughs> few different colour nails. Go on. Go on. He'll sue Listen, us. Have a great morning. Thanks to all the listeners for voting, and thanks to all the businesses for being so supportive. And more importantly, thanks to Midlands 103 for putting these awards back on again. Cheers, From Brian. all of us here, have a wonderful day. Goodbye, everybody. Brian Cunningham, live from the Midlands Park Hotel in Port Leash, the venue for this year's Midlands 103 Customer Service Awards. Now, next, out in the garden we go. Nice morning for it, in fairness. And the week ahead is pretty nice weather-wise. Temperatures getting up to 20 degrees midweek. Uh, one listener wonders, well, what happened to the heat wave that Met Aaron forecast for the weekend? Saturday was a nice day, but Sunday was rather cold, they say. Uh, well, right now, in Tullamore, it's 16 degrees at nearly half ten. He's giving out already, Arthur O'Mara. Well, not happy with the weather. Not happy with Met Aaron predicting a heat wave for the weekend and then it didn't happen. Here's me hoping f- my Factor 50 ready to go. He's nearly had to get out the woolies again. Yeah, the Factor 50 <laughs> I can understand, but the Lycra was a bit much. Mm. The Lycra was a Absolutely, bit much. Absolutely, I know. You yeah, in spandex. Look. look Speedos. <laughs> 
Speedos. Grey hair and Speedos go together. You don't know that. <laughs> no, no. Move on, move on, move on. Gardening, gardening, gardening. Um, you seem to be in a blue mood. Uh, I had a blue this morning, yes. Uh, well, I wanted to show you Xenos uh, a Skylark. Brought it in the last day and we didn't have time to talk about it. It's just a super plant. Uh, Californian lilac. Okay. Even sounds nice, doesn't it? So is it this boy here? Yes. Yes. So yes. he's got... Evergreen oh. shrub, very shiny foliage, even look good when it's not in flower. Mm. Nearly golf ball-sized yeah, flowers. Yeah, golf ball-sized powder blue flowers for quite a quite a period during early, kind of late spring, early summer. There's a whole load of them. There's ones for ground cover and there's quite large ones that get into nearly like trees. And then there's the kind of in-between ones like that that grow about three to four feet, a metre twenty, thereabouts. Uh, good evergreen shrub for a sunny spot. Californian lilac, clue is in the name, sunny spot. Mm, mm. How long will it be in flower? Uh, about two months. And then for the rest of the year, just green? Evergreen, mm. yeah. And you can sometimes, in a really good season, um, you can get a little bit of flower again in the autumn, but I wouldn't bank on it. But if you want something for the autumn, the agapanthus. Okay, so we've kind of got combinations here, do we? Yeah, I just brought a number of blue. So you can put your Californian lilac. Californian lilac on the back. Agapanthus then. high plant. Agapanthus in front. Also likes a sunny, dry situation uh, in the garden. And that flowers kind of midsummer into autumn. And the guy in front of it then is salvia. And again, more blue, slightly different shades. That one's different nearly shade of blue a purple. and a different shape. Won't grow as tall, so it's at the front of the border. And when is this in flower? Midsummer to into October. You get into October with it. So like if good. you plant the, the three in combination, you have flower from now until autumn. Very good. And the little one in front of it is salvia. Oh, I nearly now, missed him. Yeah. This lad. It's the herbaceous salvia. A lot of people will know salvia as a red flowering summer plant that you get in a six pack and you put it out in your garden and it's a lovely red plant. Uh, this is the, the herbaceous one. We actually grow them. You can grow them to put in your garden and they come back every year. But we actually grow them for people who want to use plants in pots rather than planting annuals. They plant ones that will come back every year. Mm. And they're also bee-friendly and butterby-friendly and so on and so forth. So it would be one to put into a container with maybe agapanthus because it flowers early. That'll give you flower until the agapanthus kicks in. And again, it likes dry conditions. You remember, when you're putting plants together, especially in a container... You've got to put ones that like the same climatic conditions together. So salvia, agapanthus, they will go together because both of them like a dry, sunny spot. If you have a shady spot, you'd maybe use hosta and a stilby or something else because they like shade. But if you mix them, you're giving them too much water or not enough sun. So kind of always check, are they for sun or shade, dry soil or wet soil? Yeah, you really need to know your stuff or else ask. Well, ask. But even, yeah. even the appearance of the salvia is a bit deceiving because it emerges into a stunning blue flower. Yes, yes. But before it does that, it's nearly a purple and you yes. you wouldn't pair it with the rest. No, you wouldn't, no. Um, and there's a whole load of modern varieties. There's, there's a red one with a kind of a 
white tip or it's white with a red tip and it's called hot lips and it's a super plant and it's it's one of these designer plants one of these modern plants uh, that if you open a magazine your hot lips will be in it we got probably the name <laughs> okay move on back to gardening as you say yourself but that's a that's an old-fashioned variety it's the blue salvia you grow about a foot maybe a little bit higher lovely in a container lovely in a herbaceous border and again is it ticks all the boxes flowers all summer easy to grow come back next year and it will sustain and support our bees and insects and all that which is most important mm. and will they come back in as much flower yes do you need to feed them of course right what's uh, what agrees like with them <laughs> if you don't feed them you're at nothing what agrees with it any reasonable fertilizer if you're putting them in a container use a slow release uh, pelleted fertilizer because it won't burn it won't release a whole load of nitrogen and and burn them on you so out in the garden any good fertilizer something like uh, rose food if you don't have anything else only rose food is perfect it's a good balanced food you can use grow more granules you can use Pro 8, there's so many. Just a good balanced fertiliser. Not too much chicken manure because that's very high in nitrogen. A more balanced, slow feed. Plants will flower better and be hardier going into the winter when you give them a good balanced feed. So, recap then. If you're looking for blue in the garden, agapanthus, Californian lilac, salvia and... And the one at the back is the potato plant. And that's what you ask for, potato plant. Salanum. Salanum. Right. I've got to say, you'll end up with something different if you no. ask for yes. potato plants. Yeah, yeah. well, it's the, it, it has the same flower. Well, it's a relation. The flower is a relation of potato, salanum. But you don't have to build you don't or get dig buds. drills. No, you, no. Get, you get lovely blue flowers. You can also get a white one. Ideal for a container. Now, it's not one that you would leave out for the winter, that one. That It's a patio plant that you would have. It would flower all summer long into the autumn give you a bit of height in a container and if you have a greenhouse or a, a polytunnel you can overwinter it and use it again next year uh, it's a good centrepiece for a pot that you would put other colours underneath you know a patio pot again in a sunny spot so all the blues are for the sun now let's move on to the question part of our conversation I have a problem with my apple tree says this first listener it's about three years old and at the end of the branches, at the tips, the leaves are becoming dry and dead. And I'm wondering what's going on. It's mainly on the new branches. Yeah, that is a, a, it's a, a fungal disease that fruit trees can get. Um, and this year, because it was, it was warm early on and then it got cold and then you're getting rain... And that leads to the spread of fungus, like blight on potatoes. It's like a blight on apple trees, and it's called scab, apple scab, or mildew. And you're really going to have to spray them to, to prevent that more so than cure it. If you want to try and stay as organic as possible, uh, there are sprays nowadays that you can get for, that will help to prevent. Very hard to cure it. Um, so you really need to start a little bit earlier in the season and spray them from just when the leaves are coming out and you spray them maybe once a month especially if it's, if the plant had it last season mm. that it will overwinter in the buds and reappear this year with the new growth 
So, so it'll would. be fine, just there's not a lot you can do this oh, year. Well, maybe spray with liquid copper, uh, because if the leaves are damaged and, and rusty looking and falling off, it means they're not making, it's the leaves that make the food for the tree. And if the leaves are not healthy and making food for the rest of the plant, then the tree won't be as healthy ongoing. Mm. So it is important to um, to help out the tree by uh, spraying it with liquid copper. Uh, it, it, it's environmentally friendly. And that will help, won't cure it completely. But it might protect the new, because the tree will do its best to grow and it will produce new leaves. So if you can protect those by spraying it once a month, if you can for a while, if there are lots of grass at the base of the tree, you might remove that. So it just kind of help the tree to f- fatten up. And if you if you haven't given it a feed this season, give it a, a feed of a good balanced fertilizer. Not so much high nitrogen. Again, a fertilizer that will contain a little bit of potash, which is good for fruit and flower and strengthening up the timber and and the plant. But do you will have to spray. Next. A caller wants to transplant a raspberry and blackberry plant to the garden. They're wondering when is the best time to do it, but also where in the garden will they thrive? A blackberry and and raspberry. raspberry. Well, if they're already planted in the garden, you can't dig them up now. If you dig them up now in summertime, they're actively growing. They have a lot of new growth. They will collapse and die on you. But if they're in containers, I'm not sure from the caller. It's not clear now. It's not not 100% clear. But if you have bought them and they're in plastic containers, you know, the pots that you buy them in, by all means, plant them out now, yes. Because they, they don't raspberries don't actually like containers, hmm. nor do blackberries. They're like kind of a free, open run. Blackberries are t- t- like the wild blackberries in the ditches. They're like a sunny position, but the one, the cultured ones that you will buy in a garden centre will have no thorn, so it's easier to pick the fruit, and the fruit will be a little bit bigger. Uh, they like a sunny spot, so pick a reasonable spot in the garden. You would want a trellis work or a piece of wire or something that they can kind of sprawl across. You know, they're like a climber, but plant them in a sunny spot. Are they fussy about dry not soil, really wet soil? Any reasonable soil, not too wet, like their cousins, like their wild cousins. They're not that fussy. They don't like it too wet. They do like a reasonably sunny spot. And raspberries, much the same. Both of them are easy enough to grow. But if they're, as I said, if they're already in the garden, I wouldn't remove. I wouldn't move them this time of season. Wait until the autumn time to replant them if they're in the ground. But if they're in containers, pop them into the ground. They will benefit probably if they've been in a container and they haven't been fed from a little bit of food when you're planting them. Mix a little bit of fertiliser, small bit, err on the side of caution, always use less rather more. Uh, If you use too much, you'll burn them. Too little, you can do it again. But you will have a live plant. But a little bit of fertiliser and of course, keep, even though we are getting a little bit of rain, not a whole lot, just uncomfortable rain, if you know what I mean. Um, water newly planted plants, that is crucial, because the rain we're getting won't wet them. Here's a dilemma from somebody who's buying a house and the previous owner had a particular fascination in the garden. I'll tell you what it is after these. Arthur O'Mara is here from O'Mara's Garden Pavilion and I hope you can help Garvin with this challenge. 
He's buying a house at the moment, and congratulations, by the way. The previous owner had planted 20 fruit trees spread all across the entire garden. So Garvin would like to move a large amount of them into a cluster or an orchard-type setting. Um, He's got experience. He's moved one pear tree. But this Mm. is a bigger, Mm. bigger job. So, any advice? Oh, yeah, that's a dilemma. Um, Because I hate... I just like saying, oh, uh, bite the bullet and cut them. You know, kind of the last resort, cutting down an apple tree. Uh, or any tree for that matter um, but older apple trees if there are any more than three years planted they won't really transfer that great you might get to transfer them but they'll blow over you know they'll break your heart it can be more a lot more bother than it's worth and you will set them back a lot and you can end up with a lot of problems if they're only planted a year or two they won't have got that big. I would I'd take out a good ball of soil in the autumn, give them a light pruning. Don't over prune apple trees or you drive them crazy. They hate it. Uh, well, I won't go into it, but just don't over prune. Uh, no more than 10% of the branches should you take off at any one time. And 10% would be a max. Or you upset the tree and they go into all sorts of crazy growth. Um people make that mistake when they're pruning old trees they leave them alone for 50 Mm. years and then they give them a serious haircut not good Mm. by the way clarification come in he says they're all young they're less than 1.5 metres high oh that's okay if they're only less than 1.5 metres high they're only baby trees wait until the autumn take 5% reduce the size by 5 to 10% you know reduce the height of them so that they won't be to give them a chance to re-root into the ground stake them well uh, give them. Don't put them all in one tight spot now. Because you put all if you put all the apple trees real tight together, depending on the varieties and the rootstocks they're on, that'll determine how big they get. Mm. Uh, what gaps would you leave? It depend. That depends. If they're ballerinas, they can be four feet apart because they they don't take a lot of space. If they're M nines, that's they will grow to about six, seven, eight feet. So they need six, seven, eight, nine feet between them. If they're M27s, and these are all the technical names mm. for the root socks they're on, that'll determine the size of the tree. But How can he judge? On average, If he takes a picture, brings it in? He can do that, but on average, if the trees... I would nearly know what to look at a tree, you know, by the thickness of the girth, the thickness of the stem, how many branches are on it, which rootstock it is, give or take. Uh, but don't stuff them all in a corner together or because there'll be no air circulation and you will end up with the last call of problems, a lot of disease because of lack of air circulation. So, wait till you can't do it now. Say you'll have a lot of stuff to do in a new house anyway, right? And we'll tackle the garden in the wintertime. Uh, move them in the winter, when the, in the dormant season. Reduce the growth by 10%, stake them well and give them a good lot of space. And if there are cookers, they tend to be bigger, put them at the back so that they don't shade the smaller ones. Next query, where would you get shelves for a greenhouse? I would say anybody who sells greenhouses. And it'll depend on your greenhouse because I would say some, you know, shelving will fit one type of greenhouse. So if you have a greenhouse, go back to the people you bought the greenhouse from and they should have shelving for you. Ina, her leaves on her camellia are falling off. Flower has already happened, so what can I do? Not good. Leaves only fall off a camellia when they think they're going to die. 
Uh, maybe in a pot, in a container that it's pot bound. Um, it's it did suffer from some form of shock, a serious shock to the system. It dried out. It got too much water. The pot is it has been in the pot for a number of years. It has just run out of steam. You might have to repot it. Give it a, a small feed with something like tomato food. Don't overfeed a thick plant. It's the worst possible thing you can do because you just make them worse. You imagine if you were sick yourself and you eat, and someone made you eat a big dinner. It'd kill you. So, sick plant, same. Put it in the shade where it won't be in the sun and getting dried out under pressure and give it a little bit of tomato food and maybe repot it into a larger pot and make sure you use lime-free compost for camellias. Colm is asking about a plant growing at the back of Elliot's Opticians in Athlone. Send your picture to WhatsApp 083 30 10 103. Can't receive the pictures on text, Colm, but can get them on WhatsApp, so send it again if you don't mind. Uh, we've just put down jasmine. They're white flowering, and I'm wondering what feed should I give them? And by the way, my back is killing me after all the hard work of the weekend. You and me both. And me. <laughs> Three of us in it, OK. Yeah. Anyway, Jasmine, what to feed them? Jasmine, the location you planted in is more important than the feed. Jasmine's, this part of the world, um, will only flower to any significant amount if they're planted in a very sheltered, sunny position. And it doesn't matter what you feed them with, they won't do well unless they're in a sheltered, sunny position. Lovely, lovely plant, but location is crucial, this far north, northern hemisphere. They're f- the best I've ever seen jasmine is, is London. You know, that sheltered, sunny muses, and you're walking along and you get the smell of jasmine. Serious. Uh, you probably get it in Dublin a little bit easier as well. You know, in say older Dublin, there in the older houses, there would have Victorian plant, lovely, lovely plant, fantastic fragrance, uh, very popular plant. We sell a load of it. Uh, we sell a hardier variety it's called Polyanthemum jasminoides. It has it has the strength of the polyanthemum and the scent of jasmine. But to get back to your caller, uh, having got the location right. Any good balanced fertilizer containing some nitrogen, some potassium, and some potash. And look at the box, and it it needs seven, six, seventeen. A balanced fertilizer, not chicken manure. Chicken manure is very good for giving a plant a boost until you get dinner, but it then it runs out quickly uh, because very high nitrogen. Uh, just to get plants established. You give them a little bit of chicken manure when you're planting them. They get a good feed, put out roots in the ground, happy days. But when you want fruit or flower, you want a a balanced fertilizer with high potash. If you want, and especially if you've planted a new one, uh, maybe mix in a little bit of tomato food. Tomato food is great for, for all plants, that it's very balanced. And high potash again, because... Tomatoes, you want them to grow and you want them to produce fruit and flower. So maybe when you're watering it, add a little bit of tomato food in the, in the, in the water. We're out of time. Oh. If you wish to chat to Arthur in the next two weeks, he's at O'Mara's Garden Pavilion in Gaybrook, just outside Mullingar. But he shall be back here again uh, Tuesday week. Thank you, Arthur. Talk to you then. 
Now, the 11 o'clock news is next, including how much you are paying on average for childcare here in the Midlands. Good morning. Now, still to talk about today, a thousand extra college places. But in which courses? Tips to manage bees and other pollinators in your garden. And what investment in your home will deliver the biggest energy savings? About the house and garden from half eleven. So if you have a question, 0818 is the number you can call. If you're in work, send a sneaky text or WhatsApp to 083 30 10 103. Powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Let's look at house prices, which continue their upward trajectory. According to the Irish Banking and Payments Federation, prices outside of Dublin rose 17.3% in the year to March. So that's higher than inside the capital city. And they also suspect that because building costs are rising, various materials are going up in price and building inflation is north of 18%, that even when supply improves, you won't see very much relief in house prices. And the law of economics is when supply goes up and demand remains the same, prices should come down. Tom Parlin is here to crunch some numbers. He's Director General of the Construction Industry Federation. He's from Cool Derry in County Offaly. Tom, good morning. Morning, Will. Let's talk about the materials, first of all. So where would you see the greatest levels of inflation in building costs? Well, I think we've seen it for quite a while. I was just looking back. We've had quite a a debate going on with government about the public works contract. I think we talked on your programme before about that. But um, we we in CAF wrote to the Minister for Public Expenditure last uh, July saying that timber prices have gone up by 32% and steel have gone up by 36%. So that's long before the Ukrainian war and so on at that. So obviously when COVID allowed people back to work and allowed building sites open up around the world, there was a pent-up demand for construction material. There was all sorts of difficulties in China. Uh, with their COVID situation, with their shipping situation, with containers and all of that. So that caused its own supply chain problems. And then, you know, Brexit hasn't helped either. The bulk of our materials coming into Ireland came via the UK. That's obviously been uh, made a lot more complicated by Brexit. And then, of course, we have the Ukraine crisis and the massive escalation in uh, energy. And uh, obviously, energy feeds into an awful lot of products, be it steel or uh, plastics or, or, or whatever. So it's a sort of a perfect storm. While general domestic uh, inflation is deemed to be around 7%, as you say, the um, the BFI said that materials to the, to the 12 months before April uh, were up 18% in construction. Uh, we've had several increases since then. And I'd say nearly every builder in the country has got a letter from their general supplier uh, in the last week or so saying that either from the 1st of May or from the 1st of June, Cement right across the board is up 10%. Uh, radiators are up 6%. Cylinders are up 10%. Insulation, 12%. Um, oil tanks, which, you know, obviously there won't be such a demand for oil tanks going forward, but radon and felt is up 15%. Um, and the likes of the big suppliers, Grant, their products have gone up between 4 and 15%. Uh, Wavin, a Wavin, typical basic Wavin 4-inch sewer pipe, they're going up 20%. So it's an unfortunate reality. It's not just confined to Ireland. It's a global phenomenon at the moment uh, with inflation, but construction material inflation is particularly uh, steep. 
but demand for housing is particularly high in Ireland and the uh, latest report says 32,456 units were completed in the 12 months to April. Would that be typical of global demand or are we an outlier? No, it's strange. We often think that we're unique with the different problems we have. There is a housing crisis right across the world as well uh, and a scarcity of supply. Um, So, you know, uh, the industry have responded. We are building more houses. Um, I suppose the concern about the future will be, uh, you know, if inflation is not curbed or if the price doesn't keep in line. You mentioned there yourself that house prices went up 15% and materials went up 18%. So that cuts the margin for the builder. Um, now, the industry are obviously trying to find efficiencies everywhere we can. And modern methods of construction now, you know, means there's a lot of uh, technology being used on site off-site production, modular, and so on. That means that you try and reduce some of the costs. But labour continues to be an issue as well, right across the board. It's not just in construction. People right across the board are finding it hard to get people to work. And um, with extra demand for housing and extra output, uh, that's a problem as well. And it means that generally people are paying more uh, for labour as well. You mentioned modular. So to what extent are consumer demands changing? Well, you'd be surprised. You wouldn't know a modular built house from a regular built house when it's complete. Uh, but it means an awful lot of off-site production, be it in, um, you can have either a timber frame. Well, the bulk of houses that you find now, practically all of the houses, you mentioned 30,000 completions, the bulk of those will be built with timber frame kits. Uh, so different factories around the country are making up the, the kits. Uh, the, the builder does the groundwork and all of that and the foundations and so on. The, the kit is laid down on that and put together like a Lego um, with the roof and the, and the walls. The walls generally have a brick uh, or a, a block uh, stone finish on them because of our Irish climate. Timber wouldn't last forever. But those kits have gone up very substantially. And one of my suppliers tell, or one of my members tell me today that back a year and a half ago, there were 240 uh, metres per cubic um, uh, metre of timber. Uh, they've gone up to 500 and just recently back to 480. So they've actually doubled in price. Um, so that that particular kit is made in a factory. It's brought out by a truck and a crane and it's put together on site. Uh, but you will have, find precast uh, walls now with the insulation included and so on. Uh, most bathrooms in hotels and in student accommodation now, most bathrooms are made by pods. They're made in plants. Uh, they're lifted out. They're lifted in by crane and are fitted into the corner. And when you open the door, the bathroom is entirely finished out with all of the bathroom equipment, all the tiling, all the plumbing, everything is done. So that can be done an awful lot quicker and cheaper uh, in a factory than it can be done on site. Yes, but who loses out? I I suppose there's strong demand for construction work, so the builders aren't exactly going to miss. Uh, Manufacturing will boom because of that. But if the trend were to continue, uh, who would pay the price? Well, I'd say the the trend is just beginning now. I think we're just going to see this is going to be a global phenomenon. Like, it's not so efficient to have to haul all of the material out to a site and then work under different conditions, you know, whether it can be a problem and so on. Uh, Or if you have a plumber inside doing plumbing and a painter and uh, an electrician working, you know, uh, they, they, if they don't coordinate their work very well, it mightn't work out very well and be very efficient. So, uh, on the, the and these are mainly Irish. They're practically all Irish companies that are doing the modular and doing the, the, the pods at the moment. They would almost have a, a um, an assembly line uh, 
so the individual workers are working in a comfortable covered uh, position. They probably have regular hours, nine to five mm. or whatever, and the overtime if there's extra demand. And uh, they just get their, their, their act together and work very, very efficiently. Elon Musk, the world's richest man, lives in a modular home, I believe. Uh, on site at one of his factories, $50,000 he paid for it. Now, it might be a bit of a publicity stunt for him, but do you see them becoming the dominant form of housing or will we always prefer bricks and mortar in Ireland? Well, I suppose it's going to depend on the quality uh, the product that's turned out and the, the price of them as well. And, um, you know, I suspect that's, uh, that that is the way to go, um, that we're going to see, you know, you can be much more precise and clearly, you know, energy efficiency now and air tightness and all of that, that can be guaranteed uh, in a in a, a factory built modular situation where it's a bit more difficult on site. Uh, but look, at, it's going to evolve slowly. But I, I think when you look at international trends right across the UK, across Europe, across the US, uh, there is a big, big push to modular and offsite production. Finally, a few people are wondering, what is the forecast for the year ahead on building uh, price inflation? Because COVID will slowly work its way out. Ukraine, hard to predict what the outcome will be there, or indeed whether a fresh shock comes along. So what does the crystal ball tell you? Well, I suppose I'm, I've no better access to the crystal ball than anybody else, but Ukraine crisis is going to have an impact. Uh, while that goes on, clearly we're going to continue to have very high energy. Energy feeds into uh, the cost of steel, the cost of plastic. Most most of the, 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 the products, unfortunately, are energy-linked. Um, so until we get a resolution and a solution there, uh, we're not going to see uh, any settlement. And unfortunately... When we see the sort of devastation and the destruction that has happened there, there will have to be a massive rebuilding and reconstruction in the Ukraine as well. And I just mentioned earlier, we're all familiar with that famous steel plant, the Azov steel plant in Mariupol, where the Ukrainians held out for mm, months upon months. Mm. That was the single biggest steel plant in the world. Uh, you know, it's not going to be producing steel for a long, long time. And when you take out the single biggest plant, you're going to have a problem. That happens on, on supply chains and other issues. So it looks as if we're going to be stuck with uh, fairly substantial inflation, uh, you know, in, in the, the, the short to medium term. Anyhow. Tom Parlin, thanks for your insights and thank you for taking the call. You're very welcome, Will. Tom Parlin is Director General of the Construction Industry Federation. So if you're already in a house and you're deciding, well, I'm not going to be moving anytime soon based on uh, these prices, what can you do to get that return on your energy savings? What investment will stand head and shoulders above the rest? We'll be looking at the options with Celtic Renewables from half past 11. And then, if you are getting out in the garden... Weeds have had just a brilliant year. It's been relatively mild, plenty of rain. Uh, so, you know, myself, I've been out more than once with the knapsack and could well be doing it a half dozen times before the season is over. So what sort of options on weed control offer uh, the longest returns and also the most natural and the most environmentally friendly? That's at a quarter to 12. I had a text from a mum who is genuinely, genuinely worried for her daughter. The leaving cert starts tomorrow and she is just beside herself with 
stress and anxiety. And this mom is really worried that she's not going to perform in the way that she deserves simply because she is so worked up. And yet mum describes being helpless and powerless to find the words of comfort and consolation. And it's a really, really difficult one. Um, and it leads us on to, well, I suppose, two conversations. One about the Leaving Cert, yes, and how to prepare in these final hours, but also looking ahead, and maybe this will be of some relief, a thousand extra college places are being announced by the government. So that should take pressure off in a few key areas, and we'll outline what they are in a few minutes' time. Betty McLaughlin is with us. She's the guidance counsellor at Kaloshtawira CBS in Mullingar. Betty, good morning. Good morning, Will. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a long message and I only read part of it, but my heart goes out to well, both the mum and her daughter because the daughter's in the epicentre of this. The mum is watching on helplessly. Can you find any words that might help? Well, the good thing is the mother is keeping the lines of communication open because she realises how stressed her daughter is. But I would say try and reassure her. First and foremost, they're only exams. Uh, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to define the rest of her life or how she's going to do. And I would say just take it easy today. Rest. Try not to panic. Do a few practical things because that will actually calm you down as well. Like prepare yourself, have your pens, your pencils ready. Just go through the motions, get your pencil case out, making sure you have a black biro now this year. That's more important than ever because a lot of exams are being corrected online. You know, just look at a few papers, look at the structure of them and, you know, get yourself ready and tell yourself you can. Take a few deep breaths and just go in now and stuff will come back. You have your work done. And when you start writing and when you look at your paper, when you start to read the questions, information does flow back in again. You've been doing this for so long, you know, it'll come back to you. So just try and relax and absolutely realise that even, you know, I don't know if the student is a Leaving Cert student or a Junior Cert student. Doesn't say, doesn't say. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, if you're a Leaving Cert student and you're worried about points, like the CAO is not the only game in town. You can do a post-Leaving Cert course. There's lots of apprenticeship routes for everything now, from accounting to IT to insurance, absolutely auctioneering. It's it's incredible the amount of other routes there are and you're not just depending on that points rate. So hopefully that will give her a bit of, of, of reassurance as well. And mostly students do a lot better than they expect. You know, eat, try to eat a bit today, try and take a walk, enjoy the sunshine, relax, take, uh, you know, plenty of water, tea and coffee are not good, they're only going to dehydrate you. Set your alarm tonight and, you know, as soon as you're in there, a lot of that worry will go. A lot of the anxiety is prior to the event. Usually when you get going and get on with it, it actually, you know, abates. So hopefully, please God, that will happen for her, Will. And actually, you hit on something there about hydration. If you are not drinking enough water, your brain actually shrinks a little bit. Temporarily, temporarily, but it does hinder your academic performance. So make sure when you're going into an exam hall, have something to top up the fluids with you. If you take it in one big gulp, you'll be asking to go to the toilet (laughs) (laughs) every few minutes and miss some valuable, you know, sipping away is all you need. Just drain it. Absolutely. 
And you're right as well, avoid any panic in the morning by being prepared this evening, have everything in place, and then you can just breathe a little more easily. And all of that contributes to a good atmosphere walking into an exam hall. Now, it certainly does. Let's look past the exams and on to the CAO points uh, offers. And this year we're told there will be a thousand additional college places. Do we know in what areas yet, Betty? Yes, uh, indeed we do. Will they're going to be in healthcare, medicine, nursing, social care, uh, also engineering, construction, and uh, environmental environmental um, courses. So they're they're hoping to get people upskilled in those areas. Now that will certainly take the heat out of. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the points for that, making more places, as you know, the the CAO is literally supply and demand. And it's very often the amount of applicants exceeds the number of places available. So the more places that are available, then that brings the points down and gives a better chance to everybody. So that really is a good news story for for students. And that's expected to be passed by cabinet today. I think Simon Harris is bringing it to the cabinet today. So that's very good. And, you know, uh, really at this stage now, too, I would say to leave their students, just get on with the exam now as best you can. You will still have plenty of time after your leave and start to make any adjustments to your CAO form. You are to change courses, to even take out all the courses you've been and put in new courses. That change of mind facility is open until uh, 5.15 on the 1st of July. So I would say leave the CAO aside now and try and go for giving the best performance that you can on the day. Get a good night's sleep. Stick to your usual routine because if you change your routine, it's going to make you tired. And if you're tired, you're going to misread the questions. You're definitely not going to engage, uh, you know, in the same way if you haven't got your night's sleep. So those are the things to watch out for here and now. And yes, that is good news for the CAO. And there are other options as well. As I said, it's not the only uh, game in town. Betty, you're a calming and a positive influence. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Will. Betty McLaughlin is the guidance counsellor at Wirra CBS in Mullingar. Madeline wants you to know that Walsh Island is going on tour. The Hopper's Honda 50 Barstool uh, will be going for Thursday the 9th until uh, the 12th of the month to Aranmore Island. So from one island to another, 189 miles. And it is all in aid of uh, the Children's Hospital in Crumlin. So along with some Honda 50s, um, you will uh, see quite a bit of activity on Facebook. Hopper's Honda 50 Barstool on tour. Look it up and support if you can. And they'll be stopping off in towns and villages along the way. Madeline, thank you. Enjoy to all involved and be safe as well. About the House and Garden on Midlands Today brought to you by B&Q. Change made easier. Delivering over 27,000 items from the smallest screw to the bulkiest items on DIY.ie. Now, in 15 minutes, the Solace Eco Garden Centre in Port Arlington has become one of the unexpected highlights of the region because, really, it's a collection of cargo containers, but inside it could be anywhere in the world with the creations and the flowers and the themes and 
They also have now a retractable roof over the forecourt and a heating system, so you can enjoy it all year round. It's one of those business success stories that was just so encouraging post-COVID. They're coming up to their first year, and it's fantastic to see them doing so well. But the reason John Carey will be here is for your own benefit, for managing bees and other pollinators, uh, trying to keep weeds under control. Always a challenge, but how to do it in an eco-friendly way. That's coming up at a quarter to twelve. Now, as you know, we're living in times of high energy inflation. So when you look at your home and you're asking, well, how do I get the best return for my investment? What will make the biggest difference? It's very hard to know because you're bamboozled with options. There are so many things to consider. And that's why good advice is invaluable. And let's pick the brain today of Dermot Jones from Celtic Renewables, which is based in Ballylinen in County Leash. Dermot, you're very welcome to the programme. Morning, Will. How are you? Very well, thank you. Tell us a little of your own background. Yeah, well, I'm from an environmental engineering background myself. Um, Celtic Renewables was formed in 2013 and we built it up from scratch, really, uh, myself and and the co-owner, Owen Regan. And there's 23 of us now all together. Our main office and warehouse is in Portnish and we cover the Midlands. So heat pumps, underfloor heating, PV systems, which is solar electric panels, uh, etc. That's our main focus at the moment. Well, let's begin with that last one, solar panels. And once upon a time, you could get solar panels to just heat the water. These days, you can get much more out of them. How do you know whether they're worth the investment? How do you work it out? Well, it's down to, obviously, your usage. Um, What a lot of houses are turning to now is heat pumps and obviously electric cars. So their electricity demand will increase significantly. So if you have a system that can bring the cost of that down by producing your own electricity, um, it can potentially give you up to 50 to 60% of your electricity requirements. Um, The big advantage that's coming this year is the feed-in tariff is coming back. So basically the power that you don't use because you won't use it all that goes back onto the grid, you will get some level of offset for that too. So it will help with the payback. So for an all-electric house, i.e. heat pump, electric car, etc., the payback should be between three to five years. With a heat pump and out without the electric car, six to eight years. And just with a standard house um, without the heat pump or electric car, it can be 10 plus years. And what's the so life of the panels? The life in the panels, you would get a manufacturer's warranty uh, for defects of uh, up to 15 years, but it will give an output for uh, a guaranteed output for 25 to 30 years plus, and that's from the manufacturers. So the manufacturers tell exactly what they will perceive the output of the panel will be from year zero to year 30. So it's not as if at year 30 it drops off Uh, the face of a cliff it will still produce power it does reduce a little bit on its output over time uh, but you will still get a a very good performance of it even after 30 years how quickly is the technology changing and the reason i ask what's the risk of obsolescence 
Yeah, well, the panels themselves, if we're sticking on solar PV, uh, have improved. The technology has improved. The core materials have pretty much stayed the same. So it's really tweaking, um, you know, some of the material science, the inverters, etc., have have become a little bit better. When we first started doing PV panels, for example, the output per panel would have been approximately 200, 225 watts for each panel. We can now get panels of 400 to 450 watts. So they're doing and able to get more out of these panels, um, you know, over time. But that's taken seven or eight years to get that far. So there's no, from what I can see, major uh, giant jumps uh, in the foreseeable future. It's just making the most of what's there as, as we stand. Now, you mentioned the electric car. Many of us will use the car during the day and charge at night. But obviously the sun isn't shining at night. So how do you get the return? Well, you can set your, depends on your car charger, basically. So some of the cleverer car chargers can actually take a reading from the fuse board. So basically it can tell if there's power heading back onto the grid, how much power is heading back onto the grid and just charge the car with that amount of power. Power. So if you have your car plugged in, you can tell it, wait for that um, charge to come rather than getting it off the grid. You're just getting it off the roof and whatever's left at night time, you know, on your um, night rate, which starts generally around midnight, you can say, right, finish it off then at midnight, you know. Mm. So it's, it's just about offsetting. It, it's, it's, there's no silver bullet for everything. You know, it's about energy management and managing what you're using with, with the power that you're generating. Talk to us about solar thermal then, as distinct from the photovoltaic panels. Yes, well, solar thermal is just generating hot water full stop, and and that would be stored in a hot water cylinder. So sometimes the cylinder has to be replaced. Um, Again, all depends on the amount of energy coming from the sun. So on a good sunny day, you know, you'll have a hot water cylinder up to 60, 65 degrees Celsius by midday. Um, And... That's then for usage then throughout the rest of the day into the night time. Um, so, yeah, it's around for, for a good while. But really what's taken over, if you like, is, is the solar electric because we can indirectly heat a hot water cylinder using the immersion, again, with the same technology as, as offsetting the electric car charge by charging up that hot water cylinder with the electricity generated from the roof. So there is... Um, and a better benefit on the PV versus the solar thermal, which is the feedback we've gotten from customers, because you can use more of that power. It's not just hot water that you can generate, obviously, it's, it's the other items in the house too. Mm. But the other side of the coin is your upfront costs are going to be greater with the solar electric. Slightly, but again, the grants, there is government grants there, again, changed this year, which helps the cause. So house built before 2021 is entitled to a grant. There's grants for solar thermal also. And as I said, because of the feed-in tariffs as well for getting that extra credits, if you like, for what you put back onto the grid, um, that helps the cause too. And is there a belief in the industry that the grants are going to increase over time to encourage more retrofitting? Uh, Um, In other words, would you be wiser to wait? Well, there's two ways of looking at it. Well, there's the grants have come up this year already. So the SEAI have uh, jumped the grants up considerably. 
are they going to increase it down the line? It's hard to know. They do have a big um, agenda there to get as many houses as they can retrofitted uh, by 2040. So they have significant grants there to help people do that. They can't give 100% grants for everybody either. So there is a, a personal investment people have to make. But with, as you discussed earlier on in the show, with inflation and stuff like that taking bite, prices aren't going to come down that much. Mm. If anything, they're going to go up for the materials themselves. So it's if you can do it, it's it's do it. If you can afford it, do it as soon as you can, because who knows what's going to happen in a few years' time with grants. It might just stay the same and you might be paying more in a few years' time. Dermot, you alluded to heat pumps earlier. In layman's terms, what do they do? Well, a heat pump will generally take over from your boiler. So just see it like a boiler. It's generating heat for heating and hot water. Um, It can be used with radiators. Uh, It can be used with underfloor heating as well. Um, It's, if you like, it's a refrigerant system. So it's pretty much the same technology as what's in your fridge or the air conditioning in your car or the air conditioning in your office, just done in a different way and and on a bigger scale because it's doing the whole house so it's just using the energy that's in the air to generate heat by way of, of a refrigerant cycle that it does through the heat pump. Um, again, with the grants, there's a significant grant for the heat pumps. Now, they're not um, the silver bullet for everybody. Um, you know, it's down to the house needs to be ideally at a certain level for the heat pump to be successful. So you know, we would always say to everybody that's looking at renovating or retrofitting is fabric first. Insulation windows and doors is definitely the go-to. And then look at the heating system afterwards, because if you can get the fabric right, heat pumps complement very well houses um, uh, from there because it's significantly cheaper to run than oil or gas. Um, looking at today's, well, it's, it's the most recent fuel cost comparison report Oil is up 80% uh, from this time last year. Um, Gas, electricity, et cetera, has all gone up. So the heat pumps are more significant than they've ever been for reducing the amount of money people are going to spend on their heating and hot water usage. But ideally, to get the full benefit, you'd like to pair them with the solar electric panels. So you're trying to offset the additional power cost. Exactly. Like if, if you looked at a like for like scenario of someone spending 2000 euros a year on oil, your heat pump going in uh, would cost approximately 1200 euros to run on an average house with radiators. So you're saving 800 euros a year. Obviously, your electricity price goes up by 1200 euro, but you have no oil now at all. And that in turn, if you can, again, offset the Uh, with solar PV, it will help. Um, If you wanted to leave solar PV for a year or two, absolutely, that's that's a possibility too. And net of grants, how much are you going to need to do all this for an average house? Well, your average system on on, on, um, PV, again, depending on your your usage and your uh, what way your roof is orientated, there's there's a couple of different conditions that would apply to getting the PV up. But, you know, a standard system would be anywhere between five and nine thousand euro. Um, the grants for that would be up to two thousand four hundred euro. Um, on the heat pump side of things, if it's a retrofit and renovation, 
it's not just as simple as just cutting out the oil boiler and putting in the heat pump. You know, we have to do an analysis on each room, making sure the radiator is sized properly, flush out the system, get rid of any debris that might build up in pipes and rads over time, etc. But an average installation budget-wise would cost about €12,000 um, to get the grant then, once the house is up to ideally near a B2, B1 rating, the grant is 6500 So it takes a good chunk out of that um, capital cost. Yes, and then if you consider your oil prices, uh, which won't be going down anytime soon, you recover oh. the investments in a matter of years. Uh, there's a lot to take in. So... I presume sure. that uh, your team would come to somebody's house, look at the options, do an assessment, and then give them recommendations. Is that how it works? Absolutely, yeah. Like you can get us on the website, celticrenewables.ie. If you want to send in an inquiry by email, it's sales at celticrenewables.ie. If it's a heat pump system, we would strongly recommend is getting what's called a technical assessment done first. So that's like an energy assessment. They're like energy accountants, if you like. They're there to audit just the amount of energy your house is using or losing. And with that report, then it it means that we get a very good uh, idea of what way that house is and potentially what way it's going to be. And then we would take over and and, uh, do our um, diligence on the house so to speak and get the job priced up and, and see what you thought from there Dermot grateful for your time and your thoughts CelticRenewables.ie that's Celtic with a K by the way thank you for taking our call take care bye bye Dermot Jones now next getting out in the garden trying to keep the weeds under control but doing it in a way that doesn't damage the pollinators as well the bees that we rely on So eco-friendly gardening, back to nature, because that's very much the philosophy at the Sullis Eco Garden Shop in Port Arlington, which is going to be celebrating its birthday uh, very soon. And John Carey is with us from there. Morning, John. Oh, hang on. We'll have to try that again because I meant to do. We'll get John in a moment. Anyway, um, if you have a question, by the way, 0818 300 103 is the Midlands 103 comment line. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103. Uh, if you're in work, send that sneaky text and we'll get to it in a few minutes' time. A few people were wondering about natural weed killers as opposed to the glyphosate varieties. So uh, we should have some answers on that in the next few minutes. Um... By the way, if you are feeling that you are not living life to the full, if there is something missing, if you would like to meet some inspirational speakers, then there are a few to choose from at the uh, Joy in the Spirit event in the Tullamore Church of the Assumption Wednesday evenings from 7 starting this week and they are all absolutely free. So that's the Joy in the Spirit event taking place in the Church of the Assumption in Tullamore, Wednesday evenings from 7, starting this coming week. Alright, back to the Solace Eco Garden Centre, which has become a bit of a gathering spot for people around Port Arlington. And they even have music from time to time. St. Patrick's Day was especially enjoyable. It's become a bit of an informal hub 
where you can go for a coffee and some grub and for a chat and also for all things eco-gardening. John Carey, good morning. Hello, Will. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Can I ask, by the way, how did you come up with the concept of creating this space in what are essentially 40-foot shipping containers? Well, that's right. The, the idea came originally from a build that my business partner had seen over in Holland, a place called Plex. And that was a space, uh, like a creative space and a gathering space, as you say yourself, for, uh, for people. And it was built out of 40 foot shipping containers. And it was pretty inspiring for us uh, to see it. Uh, and we, we, we were very familiar, we are very familiar with shipping containers as we've been working with them for years in our original business, which was an online garden center. And um, we use shipping containers to hold our stock. So it was, it was kind of some second nature to us to, to use a shipping container. And we knew this was just the perfect building block. It's a disused container. It no longer had a purpose. And we realized this is something that we could use and re- repurpose in our garden center. Quite the bold aesthetic, though, isn't it? And somewhat in contrast to the natural vibe that you've managed to create. So it took a bit of vision to see one going with the other. It definitely did. I mean, we we took a bit of a punt on it. We were definitely uh, going outside the moulds for a, a garden centre. And that's what we really wanted to do. You know, we wanted to create something that was more than a garden centre because, you know, there, there, there are several garden centres around and we wanted to create something that really was bringing people into the town from the surrounds and to be different, you know, not just to build the bog standard. Uh, so ship containers was was a good idea for sure. And you're right, they can look a bit stark or a bit, uh, you know, uh, rusty if you want. But what we've done is we've kind of complemented the rough look of the shipping container with beautiful planting, with creative art pieces and the two uh, elements come together to create what we think is quite an interesting space. It really works. It's lovely. And the philosophy of the garden centre is a bit different too, because if you go to most conventional garden centres, and let's say you want to talk about weeds, invariably you're going to be offered a glyphosate roundup yeah. type product. Mm-hmm. And Correct. that's not natural. So what would be the approach you'd advocate? So you're right, Will. And what we want to do, like we're involved in gardening. We're, we're big lovers of gardens. Uh, it's the horticulture industry. If anyone should be leading the way on, you know, removing chemicals from gardens and for promoting biodiversity, it should be garden centres. And that's what was big in our uh, ethos from the very beginning. So if you come to Solace, you won't find any glyphosate in our shop. You, you will only be offered a natural uh, organic weed killer. Uh, so we have that on our shop floor. We have a, a product called uh, Wipeout, which is acetic acid-based weed killer. And it's effectively a contact weed killer that will just basically burn uh, the green growth of your weeds. And once it hits your soil, it becomes inactive and therefore won't harm your soil, won't harm the environment, won't cause any harm to biodiversity. Um, on another level, in terms of the our own grounds, we actually adopted another uh, organic weed chemical or uh, weed killing process, which is called foam spraying. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No. 
it's so basically it's a, a process whereby you use hot steam uh, and you apply that over your weeds and the, the pure heat element from the steam will burn or melt effectively uh, this, the cells within this, the weeds and it'll work its way down into the roots somewhat and kill off the weeds very effectively. And again, you're only applying a hot steam to the, to the soil. There is no chemicals. Again, you're not doing any harm to biodiversity. You're not killing off essential insects or bugs or anything, or anything like that. And when it comes to brass tacks, and unfortunately, that's how a lot of us have to make decisions, in, especially in times of inflation, how would a natural product compare in price to the more conventional ways? Uh, they're, they're reasonably priced. Yeah, you can definitely get uh, these weed killers at a reasonable price. But, you know, if it comes down to money, um, really, I think that we just need to move away from the glyphosates, the, the harm that they've caused. But if you think back to when when we were all younger, if I can remember, and I was only talking about it yesterday, when you, if you remember looking at the front of your car and you could see on the bumper or on the number plate of your car, it was covered in tiny little bugs. Mm. And they're all of our windscreens of our cars when we were younger. That's something we don't see as much anymore, no. right? And that's because of the harm we've caused to biodiversity in Ireland. And uh, this is all down to increased use of pesticides, herbicides, and loss of habitat. And as a result, we're seeing a serious drop off in in uh, <clears throat> uh, insects in our in our in our countryside, uh, affecting bees also. So. Um, well, actually, for the last part of the conversation yeah. then, John, apart from the things we need to stop doing, what can we do to encourage more of these pollinators, more of these bugs to come back? Right. Well, in short, it's about three different elements. It's Well, one thing is uh, cutting your grass less often. If in a small garden, that's something that we can all do. Uh, there was a, an initiative run throughout the month of, of May called No Mow May. And the idea is quite simple. You just leave your grass growing for the four weeks of May. It can be quite difficult. I did it myself and you wouldn't believe the grass growth that we've had. Yeah, I bet last. you you have a meadow but now. It's absolute meadow, like, you know. So I did a little bit of cheating, but I think it's fair. I cut around the edges just to give a little bit of neatness to the garden. And then I left the centre of my lawn uh, to grow wild, to let it develop its, its flowers again. And it was successful. We had lots of daisies. We have buttercups there now, a lot more clover. And those three plants alone are hugely beneficial to bees. Uh, they have great uh, um, amounts of pollen and but a high diversity of pollen, which is essential for, for uh, honeybees if they're uh, gathering nectar. They, these are exactly what they need. They need good quality pollen and a good variety of pollen. So that's one, one thing you can certainly do in your garden is you can cut your grass less often and uh, do that in May and then maybe again later in the season, let it grow on for a few weeks more than you normally would. John, this is a conversation I'd like to continue in the garden centre for now. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Will. That's John Carey from Sullis Eco Garden Shop in Port Arlington. Thank you to Claire O'Brien for putting the programme together. Thank you very much for listening. Let's do it all over again tomorrow morning from 9.00.